Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so before we start Psalm 124 and 125, I have one announcement I want to give everybody. Uh, and I've made, ref- I've made kind of reference to this a couple times in the past week. Uh, so we are continuing our message series through the Psalms of Ascent. We should be done in mid-July. And then we're going to take the last two weeks of July to study um, 2 John and 3 John, because we want to get familiar with the author of Revelation before we start the book of Revelation. So the end of July will be 2 John, 3 John, and then the first Sunday in August, we're going to start the book of Revelation. But I want to manage some expectations here, okay? Because I don't want you thinking like, oh, finally, somebody's going to explain Revelation to me. Like, that just isn't going to happen. Chances are you're going to walk away more confused than when you walked in. Okay? Like, people have been wrestling with this particular text for hundreds of years, and like, I'm not going to solve the puzzle for you. Okay? But there is a way that I, I think that we can read Revelation that brings the story components into a greater light that maybe you haven't considered before. So managing expectations, I don't want you thinking like, okay, finally I'm gonna walk away and I'm gonna know how this whole thing is gonna shake out and so I can get ready for it. That's not the motivation I have for us walking through the book of Revelation. The motivation I have for us studying this book is to become more familiar with the way that the writer John uses the historical the history of the the Jewish people, um, primarily in the Old Testament, to help us understand what God is doing. And I mentioned this last week. There is a technique that is found all throughout Scripture uh, where prophecy is given and then prophecy is fulfilled. But it's not just I'm saying this thing and this thing is going to happen. It's also, prophecy is also fulfilled in this, this Um, narrative component of of telling and retelling, where God tells the story or this thing happens, and then this this component and and, and things about this get retold in new uh, and even more expressive ways that call back to the original story, but fulfill in an even greater way. And that is the book of Revelation. The book is filled with the retelling of stuff that has been covered in extensive detail in the Old Testament, and many of us are unfamiliar with it, so when we're reading, we're like, oh man, there's, there's four horses, and then there's like plagues, and then there's like people holding fire, and then these creatures with like human heads and lion heads, and then there's these candlesticks, and, and so we start assuming, okay, well, let's assign meaning to these things based off of the meaning that we have, but your meaning doesn't get to be injected into Scripture. The meaning was, was identified and the meaning was established back in the Old Testament, okay? So I'm saying all this because this is, this is what I want you guys to do. In order to prepare to read through Revelation when we start in the beginning of August, I have to give you guys some homework, okay? So if you have something to write with, go ahead and write it down. If not, we record every message. You can go back and listen to this. Um, before August 1st, we start Revelation, I want you to read through uh, the story in Exodus of the plagues, 
Just get familiar with the story. Just kind of read around it and just read through it. Just get familiar with the story. I want you to also read Daniel chapter 7 through 12. And I want you to read the whole book of Zechariah. And you're like, Zechariah? Oh yeah, Zechariah. If you've never read Zechariah, buckle up. Because it is wild. And as you start reading it through, you're just like, what is happening? I don't want you to read for the purpose of trying to understand and decipher the, uh, the, the metaphors. You can certainly do that if you want to pick up some commentaries. I can give you some names of some good ones, and you do just like a personal study leading up to that. But what I want out of this exercise is for you to start becoming more familiar with the metaphors and the themes and the components in these stories, these prophets, uh, Daniel wrote during the exile and Zechariah wrote immediately after the exile. So both of these guys are writing prophecy about the coming Messiah, the coming King. Some of that was fulfilled in Jesus, but a lot of it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And John calls back to a ton of the stuff in his writings. John is a Jew and he thinks like a Jew and he writes like a Jew and when he sees the visions that God gives him on the island of Patmos, he goes back, because that's the other thing, like a lot of us assume like, okay, well, when a prophet is writing what he sees, it's in real time, right? Like I, was, I had this vision and I'm recording what I, that's not what happens. The prophet is given a vision and then he goes back and he writes down what he saw. Well, what language is he using to write down what he saw? He's using the language he grew up with. He is familiar with Zechariah. He is familiar with Daniel. He is familiar with the Exodus language of, of, of God, the, the Passover lamb. So, and the book of John is really heavy with this symbolism too in, in, in Hebrew culture, but Revelation even more so. So in order to prepare for Revelation, I want you to go and read uh, uh, the, the, the Exodus story. I want you to read Daniel 7 through 12, and I want you to read the book of Zechariah, okay? Okay. You're gonna walk away, you're gonna come back next week and you're like, I don't understand any of that. And I'm just like, good, go read it again. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I, I just, I want you to start getting, uh, developing an appetite for, for the entirety of God's story of what he's doing here. And I want, to, I want you to start growing in your love for metaphors. Some of you are already there. You're just like, man, I love a good metaphor. And some of you are just like, I hate poetry. Please don't, don't. No, it is what it is. Just say what you mean. Um, and there's, there's some value in that, but if you, can, if you can say a dictionary worth of meaning in one sentence using metaphors, um, now you start to understand the value of metaphors. And we're gonna see a little bit of that today. So we're studying the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, we're, uh, the Psalms of Ascent are Psalm 120 through 134. And we've talked a, a couple times so far that these are travel songs for God's people. And they filled the air during festival seasons while God's people would travel from their homes to the three main festivals where they were commanded to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Um, and the structure of these Psalms are set up to tell the story of the Psalms on his journey. And what I mean by that is each psalm from 120 to 134 has a way of building on the previous one and driving the narrative. So things that happen in like Psalm 122 affect what's happening in Psalm 125. 
That's an important thing to understand. It's kind of like a, uh, like a series of, like a, a playlist if you're going on a road trip and you've orchestrated these songs where the theme of this song then builds onto the theme of this song and then builds onto the theme of this next song. All these psalms were written at different times. Some were pre-exile, some were post-exile, but they were arranged in such a way that as you sang these songs, What's happening in the life of the psalmist builds on each other. So the psalmist, uh, for example, he's, he's leaving home and he's impacted by this, this journey of traveling to Jerusalem. That was in Psalm 120. And then while he's on the journey, he's looking around at all, the, all the God's handiwork in the mountains and he sees God doing things and protecting him on his journey. He finally arrives in the city. And when he shows up in the city, he's overwhelmed by God's handiwork in the city. Everywhere he looks, he sees God doing things here. He sees God doing things over here. And as he's looking around, seeing God doing all this amazing stuff, he lifts his eyes to the Lord and he starts praying, Lord, all this stuff you're doing out around outside me, I want you to start doing it in me. I don't want just God's handiwork to be seen out here. I want God's handiwork to be seen in here. And so he starts praying for mercy. And as he starts praying for mercy, as we're going to see today in Psalm 124, he starts realizing that God has already shown him mercy. And this is the beauty of following the Psalms of Ascent, and that's why they're the Psalms of Ascent. They build upon one another as you're traveling further and further up towards the temple of the Lord. As you're going on this journey, you start thinking that this is the thing I need, and when you start asking God for it, you realize that the thing that you need, he's already provided for, and you need to start praying different prayers. the journey that the psalmist is taking is the same journey we're taking. Because there are moments when you come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I, I need you to answer this prayer and I want you to answer it this way. And then while you're praying, he starts speaking to you about how faithful he is in these other situations and you realize, man, God, ah, mm, I asked it this way, but now I'm starting to realize remembering how faithful you are and, and I'm looking at my circumstances and I'm like the thing I'm asking for, I've already got. I don't need another thing because I've got all the things already. You see how this works? So this theme is gonna continue to build on itself as we go through, uh, and it's a powerful theme because it has a way of collecting all of the important components of following God in our life and bringing them all into a collection of songs. This collection covers a huge field of the things that we would need to consider as a person following the Lord. It covers themes of faithfulness. It covers themes of protection. It covers themes of sacrifice. It covers themes of leaving, forsaking, and treasuring. It covers all that stuff. And so these Psalms are inviting us to consider God working in our lives and they're inviting us to respond in some kind of way. If God is doing this thing, then how do you respond to the fact that he has been at work before you even knew what to ask for. You, you ready? Okay, let's get into Psalm 124. Psalm 124, verse 1. It says, If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when people, that word people, that's the Hebrew word Adam, which means humanity. So when humanity rose up against us, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when humanity rose against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. 
when their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Bless the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Man, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare, it's broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, let's pause. Let's calmly reflect on that. That's probably what that word selah means when you're reading through the Psalms. Every time you read that, it's a selah. That's a word, Hebrew word that means pause. Calmly reflect on that. Think about it for a minute. And then start chewing on it like a fine meal. So let's go to verse 1. He starts off by saying, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, and then pause, let Israel now say, Now, I told you before we started that what's happening here is the psalms are building on one another. So the psalmist has just finished his long journey. He's entered into the city. He's looking around, and he sees all the things that the Lord is doing. He's looking at the bricks in the wall, and he can see the craftsmanship of the Lord behind those bricks. Everything is in its place. There's not one sticking out farther than the other. Everything is firm. This place is safe. I see the justice and the mercy of the Lord flowing from this throne that he's established here. This is where his temple is. This is where worship is. I'm walking down the street, and I can hear the songs of the Lord being sung among the people. This is a good place. I like this place. Everywhere I look, God is doing stuff. And so that forces me to lift my eyes and say, God, all the stuff you're doing outside, do inside. Lord, show me mercy because I've had enough of contempt from this world. I just came from a broken place. I now like where I am. So let's go ahead and keep going with what's happening here. I want this, all of this. I want it in here. I want what's happening here in my home. I want my house to feel like a church service. I want worship flowing through my home not profanity. I want people looking at you, not pornography. I want people in my home to reflect the goodness of Jesus like I see when I gather with his people. I want what's out there in here. He starts praying and he starts asking, Lord, do this in me. And the moment he starts praying, he's realizing that the Lord has already been doing it in him. Before he even starts knowing what to pray for, he realizes, he becomes aware that the Lord has already been doing this in him. That this whole thing that we're seeing is just a reflection of what's in here. So we're thinking what we need is out here getting in here. And the psalmist realizes, no, 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 no. Out here is what everything we see out here. It has transpired because of what started in here. See, there was this guy named David who was a shepherd boy. Before he ever had a crown sitting on his head, he used to spend his days out watching the sheep and just writing worship songs to Jesus. Jesus, to the Lord. I think he saw Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. So he's out there in the field and he's, he's writing these worship songs to Yahweh. And, and then one day, this prophet comes to his house and anoints him as a little boy. And then there's these, like, 
a long period of time where he's running for his life, but eventually he gets up into, uh, he, he takes the throne, he takes the, the kingdom, and the first thing he does is he lets what happened in his heart out there in the field start becoming the foundation of what's taking place in the city. And he says, my first act of king is I want God's presence back in the city. Get that ark out of that dude's house and bring it to the city, and I don't care how much it costs. I want his presence here. That w- the, so the city started changing because it started in the heart of David. And so the psalmist is realizing this. And so what he does, because the psalmist we talked about, he's traveling with this large group. So in this track of songs, he's now collected with this group of people and he turns, he, he has this realization as he's praying, Lord, give me mercy. Oh, you already gave me mercy. You have already been on the case before I, needed, before I knew I needed to ask you to be on the case. You're, you don't slumber. You're, you're doing the work before I even know to ask you to do the work. And so the psalmist turns around and says, let Israel now say. So what he's doing is he's turning to the crowd and he's inviting everybody to start reflecting and remembering on all the faithfulness God has already given his people. So he starts by saying, Lord, give me, give me mercy. Show up, be on my behalf. And then he starts realizing, well, you're, you've already been on my behalf. I'm actually here in this city because you've been working for thousands of years before I was even born. All this is possible because you never stopped working. And so he turns around and he says, guys, Get on your feet and let's all say this together. So he invites everybody. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let the people now say. And then verses two through five, it's a reflection on what happened when the Lord was on their side. And it's this interesting way of thinking about what life would be like if the Lord had not been on our side. And so two through five has this way of saying, this is what God has done. We're remembering his faithfulness, but we're doing that by thinking about what life would have been like had he not shown up and been on our side. And how does the psalmist do this? He uses language that the people are familiar with, and that is water, raging water. Now, why is that familiar in the life of a Hebrew? Because there's this massive story about how you became a people, and it includes this moment where God parted an entire ocean in half, so you and your ancestors could walk on dry ground, and then as soon as you got to the other side, you turned around and you watched your God close the ocean in on your enemies, and they were drowned right in front of you. This is a monumental moment in the, in the life of the people of God. There is a lot associated with water and raging sea. And so what he's saying here is he's recalling this Red Sea event of God intervening and that he, if he had not intervened, then they would have been swallowed up, swept away, overtaken, drowned by these raging rivers. He's recalling this moment that we're standing on the other side of the Red Sea And we were so close to humanity. The Egyptian army, they were right on our heels. They they could have swallowed us up if God had not intervened. But he did intervene, and I watched their army get swallowed up by him. That's the beauty of what the psalmist is communicating. Guys, let's all sing together at the fact that we thought for a split second 
that all of the cares of this world were about to overtake us and we were done for. And at that exact moment, the Lord showed up and swallowed all of the commotion and chaos with one raging sea. And it's a good thing that the Lord was on our side because if, if he had not been on our side, then we would have been swallowed up by humanity. And this watery image, this, this water imagery becomes a stand-in for the other times that God had come through with Israel. So two through five is a reflection on the Red Sea event, but it doesn't rest there because it's not the only time God came through for his people. So that's the reason why this language is used over, swallowed up, swept away, being covered over these raging waters. It borrows this feeling of what it's like to be overwhelmed and oppressed by some kind of pursuer, some kind of raging chaos that is at your heels, but God. You're about to be consumed, but God. And that's why in verse six he says, blessed be the Lord. Because there's this emotion rising up inside of me. It's like, man, God did this thing for me. And, and, I'm, and if it wasn't for him, like, I don't know where I'd be right now. I don't know where I would be right now if the Lord had not saved me. I'd be in prison. I'd be dead. I'd be living the most boring, lukewarm, compromising life with nothing to live for. I'd be steeped in depression or anxiety. I don't know where, I don't know what would swallow me up, but something would have swallowed me up if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side. Bless the Lord for saving me. Bless the Lord who has not given us over as prey to their teeth. He's saying, praise God that we serve a God who's alive and awake and paying attention to our daily lives. He's protecting us and setting us free. He's not a God who's asleep at the wheel. He's literally breaking the snare of the enemy and we are escaping. And we close in verse eight with a reflection. Man, praise God for coming through. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And what this is, this, what's happening here? the reality that he's coming to, that the realization becomes the foundation of his worship. And this is what I was saying when we began, this concept of building. I'm starting to pray for mercy, but then I realize I've had mercy all along. And all I need to do is reflect on how he's come through, and then I start getting built up in faith to know that he's not gonna leave me now. If he has provided in the past, why in the world would he not provide now? If he has never let us down before, then why do we think that this unique circumstance is any different than any time at history, in the history of the, of the people of God? Why is your circumstance so unique that this is the one point in history where God would say, you know what? I don't know what to tell you, but I can't come through for you here. You reflect on his previous faithfulness and that becomes the foundation for your worship because you know if he came through before, he's going to come through now. So what you need to, to do right now is stop complaining and start thinking. Your speech turns from, oh God, I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure, to, oh God, thank you for, yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm, thank you for the way that you're gonna, I, I don't have words for the way that you do this. Thank you, then I'm gonna get a call in two minutes and, and that is gonna resolve all of this. 
that everything I've worried about in one week, it will cease to exist. It will not even be a thing I will consider anymore. And, I, and I'm sorry that I've spent so much of my life being overwhelmed and, 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 and letting this water just flood me, being swept away with the emotions of this, when I know all it takes is for you to say one word, and all of a sudden, my fears are swallowed up in you. So reflecting on Psalm 124, it's an invitation for us to take some time to meditate on God's faithfulness. That this water imagery that's used here by the psalmist is a stand-in not just for the people of God, but for the people of God today, us. It's a stand-in for the way that anger and lust and fear and control and power has a way of flooding over us and making you feel powerless even though you aren't powerless. Hear me. The enemy has a way of convincing you that you have lost, that you have no power, that the only thing you can do at this moment is let this thing overtake you. But that is a lie. That's a lie. That's why we fall into temptation. That's why we constantly get, get, get convinced by the enemy that, that, well, we don't have any other option but to do this thing over and over again. I, I have to go back to this thing. I, like a dog returns, I've got to, I have no other choice. No, that's a lie. You do have another choice because the Lord is on your side. You don't have to go back and keep doing the same things that have defined your life your entire life. You, like a bird that was set free from a snare, that's you. You are free as a bird. You don't have to keep going back and letting this thing flood you out. You can let the Lord flood this thing and then that addiction or that lifestyle or that way of speaking or that way of thinking is now a thing that you look back on the other side of the Red Sea at the beach and you're just saying, man, see ya. That thing's, that's gone. That thing's swallowed up in my father. That's gone. It's not taking me over anymore. That thing was taken over by my king. This is what the psalmist is inviting us to consider. And that reality, that he is faithful, that his power overcomes every enemy in this world, that is the foundation that empowers our worship. We start worshiping and praying differently because what we learn when we start praying. And that's the beauty of when Jesus says something like, man, uh, you know, just ask and you shall receive. Just ask me. You have not because you ask not. And we're like, ah, all right, so let me ask a couple follow-up questions here because it seems like you're telling us as Christians we've got blank checks that we just ask for whatever and you'll give it to us. And if we start understanding what the psalmist is saying here and what Jesus is saying there, we start understanding that when you come to the Lord and you pray, that act of faith saying, Lord, I need you to come through, is actually the beginning part of your transformation. Your need makes you more aware of what your real need is. See, the things in your life that were driving you crazy drove you to the Lord in prayer, and it was in prayer where the Lord told you that it's not actually those things that are driving you crazy. See, the problem isn't 
your mother-in-law. The problem isn't your job. The problem isn't you wanting an affair. The problem isn't this kind of sin. The the problem isn't this drug addiction. The, The problem isn't the way that you speak about people. The problem is your heart. See, the issue is not this thing. The issue is you're unhappy. The issue is you're not content. The issue is you have looked at all the things the Lord has done for you, and you have said in your heart, this isn't enough, I want more. That's the problem. That's why you can't get settled. That's why you think that you're, you, you're, you would find so much more happiness if you just go to this next job. But if you look at your long run, you've, you've already have nine jobs. Maybe, maybe happiness is in a different city. Maybe happiness is in a different marriage. Maybe happiness is with different kids. Maybe happiness is in a different side of town. No, the problem is not your circumstances. The problem is right here in your heart. You are unhappy with what the Lord has given you, and you said, I want more. I've looked at my neighbor, and I've said, I want that, not this. That's the problem. But you don't realize that's the problem. You don't understand you're the problem until you go to the Lord and you pray and say, Lord, all these people are the problem. And then you realize, ah, nope, I'm the problem. This world doesn't need to change. I need to change. My whole life would be different if I looked at my life different. If I saw from your perspective and not my perspective. And that's the, that's the crafty way he works. He's like, you know, that, that care, that burden, just bring it to me. And you're like, here. And he's like, you starting to see how this isn't the burden? And you're like, oh yeah, this actually looks kind of small. There's this, uh, oh, that is, that's horrendous. That's me, isn't it? Yeah, that's you. Let's work on that. And this little thing, not really important. So set it there for a second, and let's start working on this heart that you're unhappy with. And so when the Lord says, you know, pray, just ask. What happens is when you come before him and you say, like, Lord, and you realize you're praying the wrong prayers, you start changing and you start praying different prayers and the prayers you pray are the prayers that Jesus would have prayed in the first time. And if there's one prayer that Jesus likes answering, it's prayers that he would pray. But see, the Father loves answering Jesus' prayers. So if you're praying what he's praying, then your prayers are always, you will always get your prayers answered. It's always a yes if you're praying what he wants. So James is like, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motivations. He's saying you're asking because you want the wrong things. If you ask for the things that he wants, he's always going to give them to you. But how do you know what the wrong thing is? You get into his presence and you let this transformation start taking place. So what's happening to the psalmist? He's saying, man, I, 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 I was asking for mercy and then I started realizing that, man, I'm already surrounded by it. I wanted it, but I've already got it. The thing I wanted most, you've already given to me. And that's when we get into Psalm 125. Go to Psalm 125, verse 1. The thing I wanted most, I'm, holy smokes, I'm surrounded by it. Verse 1, it says, For those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. You talk about a realization when you get into prayer. God, I feel alone. You're not alone. Look around you. Do you see how you're surrounded? That's how I surround you. You're not alone. 
Who told you you were alone? Who told you you were naked? Who's been lying to you? Verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. That seems like a strange place to put that. Don't really understand what that's doing there, but we'll come back to it. Verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who do good, for to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Oh, that's not good news. <laughs> do good, O Lord, to those who do good, but to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord's going to lead them away with evildoers. That kind of feels like when the Lord talks about the parable of the sower. Now, some seeds landed on ground and started to sprout, but then the cares of the world choked them out, and eventually they turned aside to their crooked ways. What does their end look like? It looks the same as those who are evildoers. Let's go back up to verse 1. I said that these psalms are building on each other and complementing each other. In 124, we have all this water imagery that describes the chaos and turmoil of what our life would look like if we had not, if the Lord had not been our side. And then 125 gives us this new metaphor, this new imagery of mountains. You see the contrast here? There's a life that is marked by chaos and uncertainty an overwhelming tor torrent and, and, and flooding on instability. And then there's a life that's marked by a mountain stability. It's a rock. It's not ever going anywhere. What the psalmist is starting to realize is he's praying, Lord, man, do this in me. Oh, oh, I'm already surrounded by this. He starts becoming more aware of what his life looks like because the Lord has already been at work and it looks like a mountain. What the psalmist is talking about is he's contrasting two lives, two, two lifestyles. The lifestyle of a person who fully puts their trust in the Lord, they look like a mountain who will not be moved. They look like they're surrounded by mountains, like the Lord surrounds his people. And then there's this other life that's completely marked by chaos and nonsense and drama. And the psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm grateful that the Lord makes his people like stable mountains. So these two metaphors are really prominent. As he's praying for mercy, he realizes he's already got it. And he's got it in such a way that it, it's, it's, it's solidified like concrete. His life is so stable that you can actually start building things on top of it. See, you don't want to build things on top of water. That's not a firm foundation. But you can start building things on a solid rock. And that's what the psalmist is reflecting on in verse 3. He starts introducing this contrast that one of the things that is true about someone who trusts in the Lord is that the Lord surrounds you and you've got a stable life, but the other thing that's true about a person who fully trusts in the Lord, the Lord makes their life stable, but he also removes the rule of wickedness in their life. 
Now, let me dissect this for a minute because I said verse three is kind of awkward. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest in the land. What's a scepter? A scepter is like a rod, it's a ruling staff. It's the thing a king would hold where he would mark decrees. It's a symbol, it's a metaphor for authority. And what the psalmist is saying is he's looking around at all the things the Lord's doing outside him and inside him. He's realizing that the things that the Lord is doing in him is leading him to an unbelievably stable life and it's also leading him to a life where there is no wickedness ruling in his life. So what is happening here? He's saying that someone who trusts the Lord, the Lord loves you so much that he's not gonna co-rule with wickedness in your life. There is a stability that comes in trusting the Lord and there is a ruling power that comes in trusting the Lord. He makes your life stable, but he's also the king of your life. But guess what? That king doesn't share his throne with wickedness. He removes the scepter of wickedness. He removes the ruling power of wickedness in your life because he doesn't share his throne with anybody. And that's one of the reasons why your life becomes so stable because there's not two kings who are making edicts that are opposite of each other. He removes the scepter of wickedness from the lives of the righteous. Why? Why primarily does he do that? Because he knows that the righteous might stretch their hands out and do wrong. There is no joint peace agreement between light and dark when Jesus rules your life. Because if there were, we'd have the same situation happen as we had in the Garden of Eden. When mankind is presented with light and dark, your heart is predisposed to want dark. Why is your heart predisposed? Because that's what we were born into, but also because dark has a way of lying to you about promises. Because the Lord is standing there and on his throne he's saying, come over here and I'm gonna change your life. I'm gonna make it stable. I'm gonna remove all the chaos. I'm gonna be for you and I'm I'm gonna provide for you in ways that you don't even know how to ask for yet. But I'm gonna change your heart. And the wickedness is over here saying, man, bump that. Come over here and I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want today? Doesn't matter if it was different than yesterday, I'll give you that. But what you don't understand is the repercussions of those promises that darkness makes. He says, come over here and have the time of your life, but he doesn't tell you that the time of your life ends with a 30 year prison sentence. Oh, you're gonna have a good time He doesn't tell you that that time only lasts 10 minutes. He says, come over here and compromise, fulfill the lusts of your flesh. Your your body wants that, come and get it. Eat that, consume that, look at that. Is there, what, what about, no, let's not talk about after. Let's talk about right now. You want it, right? Get it, go after it, seize it. But then after you've done all the seizing and the looking and the eating and the consuming and the, and the desiring, you start realizing the, the, the hell that you're in, the price you have to pay, the punishment, the wages of sin that come next. This is the reason why the Lord doesn't share his throne with wickedness and he removes the scepter of wickedness over the land of the righteous because he doesn't co-rule with the enemy which means 
that the psalmist has clearly identified for us that there is a line in the sand. That there are only two people on planet Earth. There are those who put their trust in the Lord and there are people who do not put their trust in the Lord. And the people who do not put their trust in the Lord, they can put their trust in 10,000 different things. They can let their heart burn with a thousand different flames for all kinds of different stuff, but it's all the same category. It's all trusting in things that will not bring resolution. It will not bring safety. It will not bring salvation. And this is the point of verses four and five. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright. There is one camp of those who trust the Lord, and there is stability like a mountain when you put your trust in him. But there, make no mistake, there is this other camp of people who choose to build their houses on an ocean, who make a decision to say, I- I'm gonna trust in, I'm gonna trust in my job, or, or, or I'm gonna trust um, uh, in this drink, or I'm gonna trust in this show, or, or, or I'm really sad, and, and I'm gonna trust that the thing to get me out of being sad is, is this thing over here, or this person over here, or I'm gonna look up to this guy. My life would just be so much better if I could be more like this person, and, and if I don't have any people close to me, then I'll just get online and I'll scroll until I find somebody that can, I can just look up to and they can be my idol. It's all the same camp. And what are the, what, 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 what's the end to those who turn to their crooked ways? They're going to be led away with evil doers. And so the psalmist is saying, in all of my reflection, I'm realizing, man, I can't have two masters. I can't walk two lines. I can't have a chaotic life and a stable life. I can't have one faith at church and another faith at home. I can't talk one way when I'm around God's people and a different way when I'm at home. If I'm gonna trust God and experience the most stable, solid life possible, a life where he accounts for everything, I have to stop letting darkness co-rule in my heart with light. I have to understand that there is a line in the sand and I have to make some choices. And these choices will result in me saying, this thing is no longer good for me, no. And the moment it creeps back and says, "Mm, but you feel so good when he texts you. You feel so good when they give you that attention, when they give you that praise. You feel so good when they shout your name. Don't you want that? No because that leads to one place and it's destruction. I don't want that. This is all coming from the reflection of the psalmist. That trusting in the Lord means you have to pick a side. You have to choose where your allegiance lies. And this is a very difficult message for this generation. And I don't mean just generation, just people within a specific age. I mean the generation, the world that we live in today. Because what is being sold to us regularly is that you don't have to choose. You can have everything. But that is contrary to what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. It's contrary to what the Lord is speaking through the psalmist. No, you cannot have everything. 
You must make a decision on where your, your, your faithfulness, your allegiance, and your trust lies. Because there's no shortage of people who want to come and say, give me your allegiance and I will make you safe. But if you give yourself to them, you have to turn your back on the Lord. Because what he's offering is full protection and security. And if you try to find salvation in something outside of him, you're turning your back on the thing that he's offering. You can't have just the nice things that Jesus talks about, love your neighbor. Well, that love your neighbor is motivated and built on something. And it's built, that something that it's built on is the fact that he loved you when you weren't worth loving. He came and died for you. And so you can't just say, well, love your neighbor. That love your neighbor is built on the foundation that he loved you. And so if you don't have that, you have no concept for what love looks like. Love looks like affirming everybody in the world for any things that they want to do. But that's not what love is. Love says you are broken and you need to be redeemed. But there's only one way to do that. So, these songs, they're packed with reflections and invitations. They tell us who God is and what he's doing. They they tell us who we are and they they tell us what's expected of us. They shape our prayers, our expectations. They remind us of his faithfulness. But they also remind us that you have to pick a side. You've got to make a decision about what what life you're going to live. But you you, you cannot have the stable life of one who is surrounded by the Lord and also live your life constantly being overtaken by any watery flood that comes your way. Hear me. I, I love you. But if you want to be set free from that drama life, you have to make a decision to start walking away from some of the drama. Now I understand that maybe this is the way you were taught, this is the way you grew up. I don't know a different way. You can find a different way. You can speak a different way. You can think a different way. You can love a different way. You can can desire a different way. This is what the Lord is offering. Not for you to just show up to church, but keep living the way that you used to live. For you to completely embrace him and all that he's offering, which means ultimately that there is a funeral for your old self because that person doesn't get a say anymore. That's as plain as I can say it. There needs to be a funeral today so that you can finally decide what kind of life you want to live. Is it built on a firm foundation or are you constantly tossed by any storm that comes your way because Yahweh will not share his throne with anybody, even you. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.